You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen. On sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford, and tonight we have an interview with science fiction author Tobias Bacall. Thanks for joining us um, tonight on the Reading and Writing Podcast. Uh, we're joined by Tobias Bacall, um, an uh, up-and-coming um, science fiction writer. Uh, he's the author of Crystal Rain, Ragamuffin, Sly Mongoose, and the latest um, uh, media tie-in novel tied into the popular Xbox 360 computer game, um, Halo, uh, and the name of that novel is uh, Halo, The Cold Protocol. Um, Tobias is also the author of um, multiple short stories, um, including publication in uh, Writers of the Future, Volume 16, and if I'm not mistaken, he was uh, a first-place winner um, uh, of Writers of the Future for that year, or was it that quarter? That quarter, that quarter, right. the year, the yearly winner, I think, if I remember correctly, was uh, Bill. Um, yeah, I can't remember. I mean, uh, uh, just um, uh, full disclosure: uh, both <laughs> both Tob- Tobias and I were were published uh, in, in that anthology, and that's how we originally met. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, so how are you doing? I mean, I know before we went on the air and, and I know anyone who reads your blogs, uh, knows that you had somewhat of a health scare back in, in November and are you feeling good now? Yeah, uh, feeling a lot better. You know, I'm starting to get back into my routine of, you know, working at night and working on some of the, uh, some of the fiction again and catching up on all the work that was overdue as I took a break from everything to focus on that. It's nice to be able to start, uh, getting in some walks again and not feel winded when I just walk across the house. (laughs) Great. Great. That's good to hear. Um, and just to circle back for, for a second, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you do have a short story, um, anthology, um, in the works. Is that correct? Or I I should say collection in the works. Yeah, I do. I do have a short, a collection of short stories that will be coming out from worm publishing. 
and that is called Tides from the New Worlds. And we're thinking sometime in February or March, you know, that it would come out. So uh, looking forward to that because my short fiction has been sort of scattered all over the place, magazines, anthologies, and some places online. So bringing it together into one package, I think that'll be pretty cool. Great. And that's Worm, W-Y-R-M, correct? Yeah, the non-traditional yeah. spelling. Exactly, exactly. Um, and and what, what was the title of that again? That uh, it's called Tides from the New Worlds. Great, great. Um, and I just wanted to, to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, your most recent novel, which is the, the media tie-in, um, mm-hmm. uh, Halo, The Cold Protocol. Um, first, are you, are you a, um, uh, a Halo player yourself? Do you enjoy the game? Totally. Uh, I have an Xbox 360. purchased one about a year ago. And one of the things I do for downtime when I you know, finish work is uh, head on over and play a few rounds of uh, Halo. Also a big fan of uh, Forza Motorsport and a number of other video games I really like. My uh, really good friend uh, Josh Smith at IamJosh.com, is, uh, lo- he lives locally. So a lot of the- he's the one who sort of uh, convinced me to uh, get Xbox Live so we could sort of duke it out online against people together. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> I'm an Xbox 360 uh, aficionado myself. I was actually one of the crazy ones who stood in line that first day to, to get one when they went on sale. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I I play with my brother in Georgia, so I'm I'm okay. very I'm very familiar with the concept of of you know collaborative play online, which is a lot of fun. It is um, a lot of fun. One of the weird things about becoming an adult is that uh, you can't really sort of ad hoc throw together a quick room party to play video games against each other or with each other. So, you know, the Xbox Live, I think, is a really great little piece of social engineering because we're able to kind of keep up with that, you know, collaborative video game playing with friends despite, you know, jobs and other things that get in the way. Yeah, it really is neat. I think for people who who um, don't really kind of grasp um, uh, kind of the the ramifications or implications of Xbox Live, it can be kind of eye opening when when you're you know playing with uh, you know in my case a, a brother who lives in Georgia, or you know if you just do a pickup game with someone you don't know and you could be playing you know. Uh, Madden football with someone in California. It's 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 a pretty it's a pretty interesting you know experience. But it anyway, is. anyway, back to writing. Um, sure. So so how did this how did this um, project come about the the Halo um, uh, book? Well, you know, Tor Books is my publisher for all of my own original novels, and they're also the publisher for the Halo books. So it was a case of you know. Uh, uh, them passing on my book to to my books to Bungie, you know when Bungie was saying that they were interested in uh, you know some new writers as as a possibility, you know like here read this guy he's one of our authors you know we've worked with him, you know see what you think and the folks at Bungie really kind of dug what I was doing so you know you just kind of get the follow up would you be interested in doing this project and I said well yes of course you know I play enough of the video game that I'm fairly, you know, really familiar with the universe. And I would love to fly out to Seattle and talk to the creators of it and uh, see if there's some, you know, a spark, a connection, see if we are all on the same page. And fortunately we were, we had a, a good time talking, you know, about, you know, ideas and things we could do. So then it just kind of, you know, moved on from there. Great, great. Um, and, and how did you find that um, experience of writing kind of in someone else's universe um, what what was that process like? I mean, did you did you um, uh, you know have a pretty regimented um, 
uh, um, you know, area that you could write in? Did you come up with the, the concept and run it by Bungie? How, how did that whole process work? You know, it's it's not all that different from writing uh, a second or third book in an already existing series that you've done. You know, when I was writing my third novel, Sly Mongoose, I had to spend just as much time, you know, double checking that what I was doing made sense within the context of the previous two books. And when I was working on Halo, you know, I had to do the same sort of process, which was just check and make sure that what I was doing was not conflicting with anything that had come before. In this case, there have been five books written before my sixth Halo novel and the three video games. And that's a little bit more than just the, you know, the two books I had, but it's a very similar kind of feeling. The big difference being that in this case, there are a lot more people involved. In other case, you know, when I was writing my third novel, I was only checking with myself, looking through my notes, looking at outlines of the previous books to figure out whether what I was writing made sense. In the case of Halo, not only was I relying on my own familiarity with the universe not to make mistakes, but I was also, you know, um, running it by people at Bungie, you know, who were involved in the process to make sure that they felt that I was not, you know, making any mistakes. But for the most part, it was a, it was a very cool and interesting thing where, you know, when I was in Seattle, I had some ideas that I pitched to them and, and they had some ideas that they pitched to me. Like, you know, we, we were hoping we could see X and I would say, oh, that's a really cool idea, you know, and I could fit it in with Y, which I want to do. And, you know, after we talked, it's just kind of like, well, there's a lot of cool stuff we can do. So let's do it. So right. it, it was a very comfortable experience. A lot of people ask if it's very structured or, you know, do you, did they just tell you what to write and you went out and wrote it? No, it, it was a very collaborative thing. You know, we had this really great initial conference where we talked about ideas and from that, you know, sparked off into, you know, continuing on by long distance what we were doing. And my editor, uh, Eric, Eric Rabb is really cool. He's uh, not only a, a really fun guy to work with, but he was familiar with the Halo universe as well, being the editor on a number of these projects. So a lot, running a lot of stuff by him and seeing if I could surprise him or you know, not surprise negatively, but sort of kind of get him to go, oh, that's really cool, that thing you did. You know, Doing stuff like that was a lot of fun. So it, it, the main difference is that it tends to be a little bit more of a collaborative environment. And I, I can see why for some writers that would be very negative. But since I'm someone who came into writing workshopping novels and I've run lots of my short stories and novels through workshops, I'm very used to figuring out you know, how to incorporate useful suggestions from other people that can make my work better. So it's not really a hard thing to do for me. Great, great. Um, I'm wondering, you know, I, I think I kind of know where you would stand on, on this point, given that, you know, um, you did write this novel, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of wondering where you um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, what your thoughts are, because, you know, within the, you know, uh, genre community and specifically science fiction and fantasy, you know, there, there have been, you know, some strong proponents, uh, you know, one that immediately comes to mind is Robert Sawyer. Uh, Robert J. Sawyer, who 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 um, thinks that um, you know, and, and obviously I wouldn't want to put words into his mouth, but but from <laughs> from from everything that I've read, and you know, I'm not saying rightly or wrongly. I'm just saying that this is his, his opinion: is that you know, media tie-in fiction is um, is a really bad thing for for the field at, at, at large. And and I'm just curious. Um, given kind of this overall discussion about the pros and cons of media tie-ins, you know, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about about that whole discussion. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I would have to look at the the article or or the reference from from Rob to sort of counterpoint that. But there is a general, um, you know, number of people who don't like media tie-in. You know, it's it's uh, it's a genre like any other where some you know uh, it amuses me. I'm I'm, I'm fairly agnostic about the whole thing uh, for me there are a lot of tie-ins that aren't that great and there are some tie-ins that are really cool you know it's just like when you know lit people sort of like sneer at science fiction and say oh it's, it's just all that commercial rocket stuff you know and sure. on, on on one hand you know the there there is a point where a lot of science fiction and fantasy is written uh to commercially please an audience you know it is uh it's a it's a commercial genre in many ways, and in many ways it's completely not. It's completely the opposite. It all depends on what areas of it you're accessing and and what you're what you're reading and and who's reading it and what's going on. You know, it's it's too big to say it's one thing, and I think uh, media tie-in fiction is too big to say that it's one thing. Um, you know, you have Jeff Vandermeer writing Predator novels. You have, you know, um, sure. Lots of authors doing lots of cool things. Matt Stover's doing some really cool things with Star Wars novels. Mm -hmm. You know, I could never really work myself up into high dudgeon because anyone who spends six months or however many months of their life working on a novel um, doesn't deserve my, you know, doesn't deserve a lot of crap. You know, whatever, whatever happened, it's still, you know, uh, six months of someone's, someone's life that they invested in something. I just... It's it's a lot of energy wasted when so many readers really dig on this stuff. It's sure. been really interesting uh, to write a tie-in novel because you know you get just uh, a lot of. I, I think one of the things is that young readers and and some readers in particular have had the sort of cod liver theory of reading, cod liver oil theory of reading stuff down their throat, which is that from a young age they were forced to read or given books because it was quote unquote good for them, and. Not uh, there are a lot of people in life who never learn to read just for the entertainment value, and thus, as a result, just don't learn to read. And for some of them, that can be broken down with uh, a, a trusted brand that they know will deliver X, whether it's they know it'll deliver action or adventure or something else that they like. They'll go with it, which is why some people do start out reading nothing but media novels. They'll they'll read you know the Halo book because they played the Halo video game and they know, without having to do research. That this isn't going to be sort of cod liver oil rammed down their throats. It's going to be something that they know they'll enjoy ahead of time. And I think that that aspect frustrates a lot of people who wish more people would read, you know, and so we get some weird, weird end results. Um, sure. You know, and, and if, I, I would wonder too, um, you know, and again, this is in no way a, a knock against Rob or what his, his thoughts <laughs> are, but but um, I, I would wonder too if it's somewhat generational and that, that you know, a younger generation would be more open to uh, media tie-in fiction because, um, and, and I don't have a lot of actual data, this is all just kind of, you know, right, um, right, right. theorizing, but but I would, I would think that, you know, um, you know, the younger generation, and I hate saying that because that indicates that I'm not of that generation, but, <laughs> but I, I would think that, you know, tends, tends to have grown up in a world that, that, you know, is definitely more media saturated, um, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, than than you know previous generations, and and I think you know have grown up with with a lot of kind of uh, you know meta fiction and 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 you know seeing popular characters in, in various you know forms, whether it's comics and novels, and and would be more open to 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 that. I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. Thanks for listening. We'll be back for more of our interview right after this. The Kindle Chronicles is a Friday audio podcast all about the Amazon Kindle e-reader. I'm Len Edgerly, and each week I present Kindle news, tech tips, an interview, a quote, and listener comments. I've been a writer all my life, and I'm doing this podcast because the Kindle has simply renewed my love of reading. I hope you'll stop by for a listen. You can find me at thekindlechronicles.com or by searching for Kindle in the podcast area of the iTunes store. I think I think um, you know, and I, I have no, I you know, I seeing as that Rob is a huge Star Trek fan, I don't know what his position on this stuff is, but um, the uh, I think the thing that that interests me is that some people do assume that this is a zero sum game. In other words, that there's a pie, you know, and that the reason they're upset about media novels is because they take a certain amount of the pie. And they think that if the media novels didn't take that section of the pie, say 25% of the market or 50% of the market, then that would be available for science fiction novels. And that the popularity of media novels then uh, as a result in their mind detracts from the popularity of science fiction novels. And I think that that's I – don't, I don't know if that's true. I mean I'd love to see some hard data or some studies because my instinct is that the people who read media novels – we're not going to be buying science fiction novels. It's Think of it as a separate uh, genre. In other words, it's like being upset that mystery novels are selling really well because if we could just stop giving shelf space to mystery novels, we could sell more science fiction. I, I think it's, it's enough of a different genre because it's doing different things for different readers that it's scratching a whole different itch. Yeah, yeah, and, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that um, – you know, if there was not a media tie-in novel on a bookshelf in in, in a bookstore, um, I think a lot of the readers who are reading those now would be coming into science fiction and fantasy either via manga or or right. some or some other you know type of media outside of like you know picking up um, you know an Arthur C. Clarke novel for their first experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would like to see some uh, anyone who's outraged about media fiction get more outraged about the selling of daily journals. Because uh, I was at a, uh, uh, gosh, I think a Walden Books the other day, and they'd replaced uh, two thirds of the science fiction section with a display dedicated to Moleskine and notebooks for writing in. So oh, that's you know. horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so. It, it, it just happens. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I wanted to, to um, spend a little bit of time because I, I think that um, uh, you know within the within the genre, which is you know tending to you know in my opinion become somewhat more diverse than it has been um, in the past. Uh, you have a unique background in that uh, you were born in the the Caribbean um, and and grew up you know, outside of the, the continental U S. Um, and I just wonder, you know, what, what you feel that has kind of brought to your, to your fiction and your perspective as, as a writer. 
Well, I think it's always useful for a writer to be a bit of an outsider. And the way in which I grew up uh, living on a boat. So even though I, I was uh, part of a different set of communities in the islands than I am here in the States, even then I wasn't really a part of those communities because, again, I lived on a boat off of them. And uh, I think that uh, has given me a, a fair amount of sort of a ability to sort of look at things and, and sort of step outside and uh, explore them a little bit easier. And that, of course, is, is a useful skill to have as a writer. And secondly, yeah, I, I think that uh, one of the interesting things to me was uh, I was looking at my bookshelf not too long ago, and I realized that all the science fiction that I was enjoying the most came from writers from outside the U.S., Commonwealth writers, is uh, science fiction writers. So we had uh, Australians, Canadians, Brits, Scottish and Irish writers uh, were all on my shelf, and I realized that there's it's been a really interesting run period for uh, those writers, and the Commonwealth writers are really producing some fascinating science fiction, and that that I found that really interesting. That uh, I kind of you know I'm not really uh, outside of the U.S. anymore. I'm sort of living here in Ohio and in, in the Midwest, but I definitely have that background. Uh, my biological father is Caribbean. I'm related to the whole island of pretty much Cariacou or Petty Martinique, and I still have a lot of relatives in Grenada. Um, and growing up for the first nine years of my life around that environment was is it's just very useful to to come from a different place like that. Um, and I certainly think it is good for science fiction that we're starting to get people who are sort of uh, more diverse pop from a more diverse populace. We still have a long way to go. Sure, um, sure. And, and, and it's, I, it's I, wonder very... if you, I wonder if you've ever thought about that, that, that um, uh, um, again, not to kind of pull you into, to, you know, some type of controversy, but it's always, <laughs> it's, it's always been interesting to me. It's what the that, internet is for, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's always been interesting to me that, that ostensibly science fiction is um, a literature about embracing new ideas, new cultures, new experiences. And yet there's, there's, um, a, a huge part of the genre that that well I, again I don't have numbers but but right. um, you know there's definitely a, a presence within the genre of uh, you know for the lack of a better word a, a very conservative uh, mindset um, uh, and it's just interesting to me that that um, I mean I guess you know it's the big tent theory that there's you know. Um, something within the genre for for everyone, but it, to me, it's always been kind of a, a an, an odd um, experience to to you know look at various blogs or or you know even before blogs you know discussions and, and various letter columns that um, you know there's there's definitely a a um, uh, audience of science fiction readers that would identify themselves as being very conservative um, politically and, and, and socially. And that's always been kind of, it's always been a head scratcher to me. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty big tent. I mean, there's a little bit of science fiction for everyone. So that's not surprising. <laughs> it does surprise me that, you know, a group of people who are interested in the future or think, you know, want to think about the future a lot are sort of, uh, you know, somewhat, somewhat resistant to change, but that's uh, that's because I think in some parts of science fiction, it, it's uh, people are not seeing all the readers. Um, I did an experiment once where 
you know, I sat at a books. I've done this quite a few times. I, I like to do it because uh, I sat at a bookstore in a science fiction section and interviewed everyone who came through and uh, kept some rough statistics. And all kinds of people read science fiction. You know, people show up in business suits. People show up, you know, looking scruffy. You know, you get uh, people who look like people imagine a fan to be and people who don't, just as you do when you go to a science fiction convention. It's not just the people who are dressing up as their favorite character. You get a, a full range of people. And it's something a lot of people – I think a lot of people forget. And I think that there are a lot more uh, diverse people reading science fiction than anyone realizes and that the – fandom which is people going to science fiction conventions that you know started out as a particular subculture and as a result uh it, it was very ground it started as a particular subculture grounded in a literature that's very interested in modernization modernistic uh thought impulse and was written mainly by engineers who tended to be usually in the 1950s and 40s uh engineers tended to be you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. In the U.S., white. Uh, so what you get a lot of is is that continuation of the engineers and uh, scientists' background being you know influencing fandom, and for a lot of it being uh, mainly mainly of that background, and it's never really stopped and thought about trying to recruit out. But I think the actual readers of science fiction, the people who buy the books, are are not represented by fandom, even though fandom is a tremendous special interest group and has a lot of voice and it's wonderful because it has sustained short stories and sustained a lot of the vitality of the genre and certainly sustains authors' careers and gets word of mouth out and jumpstarts careers. I think a lot of people also then tend to forget that uh, science fiction readers are a slice of whatever country they're being sold in. And if you look at America, that means it's a very diverse readership. Sure. So I think we do ourselves a disservice when we uh, – I think the, the field has done itself a disservice by not having you know, more writers, not welcoming more writers of diversity and uh, by not having more characters, not making it feel uh, like it's more welcoming to diversity. But I think a lot of that's changing. You know, yeah, I'm very yeah, optimistic about it. People mm -hmm. always get upset with me when I just point out the simple math of you know, how few uh, writers of, of – diverse backgrounds there are just by saying, you know, look at the U.S. census and then match it up to the number of writers out there. And you can quite plainly see that we're not a very diverse subculture here of writers, but a uh, population of, of writers is also, you know, a skewed sample because we're small. So, sure. you know, statistics sure. skew. Um, but still, that's, and it's that, not it's a, it's, still, it's yeah, awfully it's not a, small. It, yeah, it is an awfully small group, you know, that there are only a handful of 
you know, African American writers. Yeah. You know, I mean, the fact yeah. that I know pretty much all the African American writers and can count them off on like, you know, two hands sure, is is sure. a problem. We should out of a thousand writers have, you know, closer to a hundred. Sure. Um, if you look at uh societal statistics. So I'd love to see some of that change and I see that, you know, as being somewhere where we can we can improve. But it's not you know, people always get really upset when I point it out and it's not a you know, I'm not agitating for any particular thing. People are like, oh, do you want to put quotas? Or I'm like, no, I'm just saying that, you know, it's something to think about and figure out how you personally want to address it and make it better or how, you know, or just at least recognize that there there is this, you know, 800-pound gorilla in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree. And and, and I, I agree with you. I, I, I tend to be optimistic about the future um, and, and, and the growth of, of diversity and and. Um, you know, both the writing and, and, and the author. So um, I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit um, and, and quickly talk about, um, uh, do you remember the first book that you, that you read and fell in love with? The, I remember the first book I read was a Clive Cussler book. I don't remember which one. And I remember the first science fiction book I read was Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. Great, great. Um, and I'm wondering along those lines, do you do you remember the first story that you um, wrote or um, you know tried to write in terms of fiction, your 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 early fictional efforts? Well, my mom had this interesting thing where to keep me busy, she'd made a, uh, a uh, taken a big box of matches and written out words on little pieces of paper and put them in there, and I'd shake it up and pull out the words and make sentences. So from a very young age, I remember playing with words once I started to learn to read and just doing that for, you know, writing out sentences and having fun with that. Later on, I think the first short story I ever attempted was in first or second grade, maybe third grade, somewhere in that area. Uh, I was at Westmoreland School in Grenada. And I I remember that it was a story about a kid who gets lost in a forest and uh, figures out that uh, he he needs to figure out like where the sun is in order to you know identify which direction he needs mm-hmm. to go to get out of the forest and find a road. <laughs> <laughs> and aren't you supposed to like feel the moss and which side of the tree it's growing on? Well, I mean, uh, I didn't know that one. I don't yeah. think there's moss in Grenada, or yeah, there true, may be true. moss like water moss, but I mean. The 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 more tropical jungle was true, true. what I'd been exposed to, as well as just being at sea. So my whole my whole situation there was just find the sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I wonder along those same lines, do you um, remember a specific moment when you um, when you said to yourself, you know, that that you seriously wanted to pursue fiction writing, and and I wonder, you know, if you can remember a specific moment and when that was. Specific moment? I don't know. It, what happened was um, I'm I'm ADD, so uh, I don't really. It, it's hard, tough for me to pay attention for a whole class. So I used to read books in class all the way through around seventh or eighth grade, and and it's cute. It's cute up to seventh grade, but somewhere around eighth grade, what the teachers start doing is getting frustrated that you're still just reading books in class, and they start taking them away. And so what I started to do was uh, write short stories and chapter chapters of novels in mm-hmm. class because it looked like I was taking notes. I stayed out of trouble, and it also kind of entertained me. And I started to sort of fall into the idea kind of gradually that I was somewhat passively decent at this because people would read snippets and kind of be surprised. I remember, you know, people just sort of saying, "Hey, that's pretty good," you know, and 
somewhere uh, somewhere somewhere in that area of time in the seventh or eighth grade, along with that slow development, I remember coming across a book, uh, sort of a children's YA adventure book, and I I forget who published it, but it mm-hmm. had such horrible dialogue and scenes in it, and it was so badly written, and they're just gaping errors of logic that I remember sort of that little kind of good grief, you know, I could do better than this sort of light bulb going off. And Mm -hmm. from that moment on, you know, once I had that sort of confidence that, you know, I'd read something that that was beneath what I could do, (laughs) in my opinion, uh, I set out to sort of uh, start uh, submitting short stories. And and when did you start submitting short stories? Uh, My first uh, short story I submitted when I was 15 to Writers of the Future. Um, because uh, the anthology came down to the grocery stores down there and the, they had little book racks and I picked mm-hmm. up one of the uh, Writers of the Future anthologies and they had the instructions in the back on how to submit. So when I was 15, I, I wrote my first complete short story, which I still have. I just donated to the archives at uh, Northern Illinois University and uh, went ahead and wrote a complete short story and mailed it off. Great. And um, what was the the process like from there to um, your first publication? Well, I mean, I started doing uh, occasional short stories in, you know, all throughout high school. So from 15 to 17-ish, my uh, sophomore, junior, senior year of high school. And when I went to college, my sophomore year, I decided to get really serious. I bought a laptop. I learned how to touch type. You know, and I set out to to submit a lot of short stories and write a lot of short stories. So somewhere around uh, the age of like nineteen or so, eighteen or nineteen, I started really trying to get. I had to set this goal of getting a hundred rejections a year because I determined that I couldn't. I couldn't guarantee or or make a professional sale. You know, it was out of my it was out of my uh, ability, but I could definitely get a rejection just by writing a short story, sending it off and getting it back. So in order to have an observable goal, I set myself the goal of having a hundred rejections every year. And in order to, in order to do that, I'd have to write, you know, X number of short stories and submit short stories and get the rejections back. So I just started cranking out short fiction and learning and reading books on writing, you know, more seriously. I'd been doing it sort of on you know, as the, as the fancy struck me ever since I was in high school, but I started really getting buckling down with this idea that I wanted to be published. And when I was, uh, you know, uh, 20 sold my first short story for cash. And, and, and where did you sell that to? <laughs> it was a very small little, uh, online zine called Jackhammer. They mm-hmm. paid a penny a word. I made $7 and 50 cents. They rounded it up 50 cents and gave me an $8 check, which I then photocopied and framed because I needed the eight bucks real badly. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. So did you reach your goal of a hundred rejections? Yeah. You know, my sophomore, junior and senior year of college, I got a hundred rejections a year. I wow. racked them in. I think the most I had in one year was 130 something. And I wrote well upwards of a hundred and some short stories during that period. So I was trying to, you know, write write them as, you know, write a short story at least every two weeks, and, you know, it uh, it definitely was my an extreme studying phase. I learned a lot, and I also during the middle part of that went to uh, the Clarion Science Fiction and Writers Workshop in uh, Michigan, 
which is now uh, moved out to the West Coast. But that was a really big thing for me to do too. So in the middle of writing all these short stories, I went to Clarion for six weeks and studied with other writers, you know, with the same goal as me and with uh, instructors who were working writers who talked to me about, you know, the craft and everything. I just soaked it all up and then went back and continued trying to get my hundred rejections a year. <laughs> um, I'm curious uh, how much uh, of a chance do you have to read for pleasure and, and what, are, what are some of the books uh, or authors that you've read recently and enjoyed that you, that you would want to talk about? Sure. You know, I love reading still. You know, it's still what gets me excited about what I do and what my job is. I I'm a fast reader. No one ever taught me that I had to read at a certain speed. And since I am easily distracted, I tend to, as a kid, start reading faster and faster in order to keep myself from getting distracted. So as a result, I've kind of developed a a weird way of reading, which is I read a line to a paragraph at a time. And uh, it it really works for me. If I really like a book, I'll just keep rereading it. Um, Some of the stuff I've read recently that I really liked, well, Patrick Rothfuss, uh, Name of the Wind, was really good. I read that a while back, not too long ago. That was a lot of fun. Really good fantasy book. Been reading a lot of fantasy of late, oddly mm-hmm. enough. Um, but I mean, I've been reading a lot of Alistair Reynolds, Ian Banks' latest. You know, I like Ken McLeod. Just went through some. Uh, just went through some. I uh, uh, just read uh, Prater Moon, uh, which was really good. And uh, let's see, what else? Matter by Ian Banks was a pretty good read. Great. Um, you, you mentioned you've been reading a lot of fantasy. I know that yeah. uh, primarily your your novels have been um, science fiction. Do you have any thoughts or, or ideas in terms of writing a, a, a big fat fantasy novel? I don't want to write a big fat fantasy. I actually want to write a very lean, small, um, tight fantasy. Um, I'm kind of uh, – I. You know, the more I'm reading, the more I'm finding I don't necessarily enjoy the big fat fantasy. I understand why they're they're big fat fantasy, and I, I dig the appeal. I, I flipped through uh, and read George R. R. Martin's uh, recent books because uh, you know he's always been a favorite author of mine, and whipped through a bunch of other books. And of course, Pat Rothfuss, you know, the name of the wind is uh, you know sort of a big fat fantasy that starts with everyone having a hearty stew at an inn. Um, which, which even though it sounds kind of stereotypical, uh, still ends up being just a, a bloody fantastic book, you know, just because something's been, you know, sounds used before stereotypical, you know, like a hearty stew at an end doesn't necessarily mean the story's not going to absolutely rock and, 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 uh, name of the wind really does. But, uh, I really wanted to do something, uh, tight and lean because I'm fascinated by audiobooks right now. And everyone keeps talking about the ebook revolution, but I really think we're going through a tremendous audiobook revolution right now because everyone has an iPod, everyone has an iPhone, you know, millions of people. And what we're seeing is that although ebooks are still going okay, audiobooks are going gangbusters, man, you know, um, and podcast books are going gangbusters. And I'm really intrigued by this. I'm really intrigued by this. So what I'm writing right now in my spare time, it's my fun project. I don't have any expectations about it because it's way out of my usual comfort level. But I'm writing a short story or it's a novella. It's probably going to be about uh, twenty to 30,000 words, no more than 40,000 words called The Executionist. And it is sort of a um, high fantasy sword and sorcery type uh, vehicle uh, with maybe a little bit of steampunk thrown in. We'll see as I go along. And it's it's a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun, and it's purposefully written to be tight 
and purposefully written eventually to, to be um, put on audio is what I'm hoping because I think that 20,000 words to 30,000 words is a really ideal length for an audiobook. And the really longer stuff, I just downloaded my own novel, Sly Mongoose, which is for a science fiction novel, pretty short. It's about 80,000 words, 320 pages. And it takes eight to 10 hours unabridged to read. Now, that's pretty cool, but I'm thinking if I'm driving in traffic, even if I have a one hour commute each way, it's going to take me a minimum of six days. And did I do that right? Um, I think I may have messed up the math on that. It's going to take me a minimum of five days, sorry, right. <laughs> to get through it. And so that's a whole week to listen to the book. I mean, I guess that's okay, but I'm thinking about myself as a distracted modern man, and I'm just thinking, you know, if, if I start the book on Wednesday, what happens when I come back to it on Monday? Sure. And I'm just sure. listening to books right now on tape as I do these daily walks with my dogs um, as I'm trying to get back my health back. And sometimes, you know, I'll skip two days or even three days before I get back to a book and plug it in and be like, I have no idea, you know. So I'm really wanting to play with this. I just – Elmer Leonard uh, has a really uh, interesting book called Killshot, and it, it's quote-unquote called a book. But Killshot is actually technically more of what we in, in science fiction circles would call a novella. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very, very, very short novel, very lean. And I was able to listen to it. I think the audio was about three, uh, three hours. Mm-hmm. So I was able to listen to the whole thing in about a day and a half. And it made a huge difference on how I ingested the whole audiobook experience because I was able to actually listen to an entire audiobook in a uh, much more discreet time span. And I really am wanting to play with that a lot more. Hmm. That, sound, that sounds very interesting. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, going back for a minute to, to talking about um, you know, some of the books that you've read recently. I'm just curious sure. if there are any specific um, – uh, authors or specific books, you know, over, uh, you know, over your your you know career thus far, um, that have had a particular impact on you, um, or, or last made a lasting impression. Well, of course, Childhood's End had a really big impression because it's the one that sort of uh, was the first hit that got me hooked on science fiction. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke has a very fond place in my heart as a result. Because uh, he's the person who really did convert me to being a science fiction reader, and I love his sort of global outlook. Um, you know how global his writing is. He, mm-hmm. he has this this interesting interesting perspective that's that's not as limited as sometimes I feel like I find in some writing. You know his characters seem to come from all over the world. He you know, and I really respect that. You know. Um, but the writers who really got me fired up in high school were I had a, I had a really great week once where I read Neuromancer, A Fire Upon the Deep, and Islands in the Net all in the same week. <laughs> Those are all some pretty darn good books. Neuromancer, of course, started the whole you know cyberpunk novel sure. uh, series with uh, William Gibson that that kind of got me hooked on cyberpunk. Because I have this real fondness for noir. Even as a kid, I used to read hard-boiled detective mysteries. Mm-hmm. Just love the tone, the atmosphere of a of a good noir hard-boiled mystery. And so, coming across this in science fiction just scratched a lot of my just scratched a lot of my buttons just perfectly. Mm-hmm. So, Neuromancer definitely uh, plugged in and, and lit me up. Um, Islands in the Net by Bruce Sterling got me hooked on Bruce Sterling. I, I love most of Bruce Sterling's novels. 
And Islands in the Net is is a big book for me because it was written – the first third of it is set in Grenada, which is, of course, where I grew up mm-hmm. the first uh, nine, or, nine or so years of my life. And so to see the Caribbean featured in a science fiction novel as a entity with its own with, – with the ability to play in, the, in a larger global world uh, just really struck me as being something that I wanted to do. And – that book really inspired me to go ahead and think about and, and just want to become a, a Caribbean science fiction writer and you know take some of the stuff that I was thinking about wanting to bring to science fiction and kind of gave me permission to go ahead and bring it. And you know, as a result, you know, Crystal Rain and Ragamuffin and Slam on Goose are all books that are inspired by that kind of fusion. Um, the other book that really had a huge impact on me was Werner Vinge's A Fire Upon the Deep. It's a book I really loved. And I just kept reading and rereading and rereading that. So three books that had a huge impact on my writing and that you know stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I happened to encounter them all on the same week. So <laughs> you know, in high school it was horrible because for the next like uh, gosh five or six months I was just a cyberpunk you know uh, imitator. I just that's all I would write. <laughs> yep. Um, I'm I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned um, the fantasy novella idea that you're kind of toying with, um, mm-hmm. and you know I just mentioned that you uh, recently had your uh, Halo media tie-in novel published. Uh, I'm curious if you have started working um, on another full-length science fiction novel. Um, are you working on something now? You know, I'm kind of in between. We we finished up the Halo thing, and then I had my health kind of fall apart on me. Um, and you know, I'm, we've been happy with the sales of Crystal Rain Ragamuffin Sly Mongoose, but, uh, or at least I have been happy with them, but they're not nearly as, as big as, um, everyone's hoping for. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some, one thing we're discussing is, uh, where to go next, you know? And so I've got some ideas of some novels that I, I would like to write for the next two books while we just take a break, you know, and wait for people to find Crystal Rain Ragamuffin Sly Mongoose and, and uh, see how the sales of that continue on. You know, one of the weird things about writing is that sometimes, if it's not an instant hit, it can take a while for you to kind of see how sales, you know, ended up influencing. You know, we're still selling the paperback of Ragamuffin; it's still out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we know pretty much how Crystal Rain did, but uh, Ragamuffin Slime Mongoose results haven't come back. And you know, I didn't shoot up on the bestseller lists overnight there, so. We just sure. gotta wait and see how the how everything trickles down and finishes up. Um, but yeah, there's kind of uh, you know we could uh, you know with the success of Halo and everything behind us, uh, interested in trying something new for the next two books that Tor is into me for, and I'm inter- actually interested in trying something different now. I've you know enjoyed playing around with the series that I did, but uh, I've definitely got lots of other novel ideas. So right now it's just kind of we're in between and. Uh, Probably it'll all get hammered down in early February is when I'll start doing the next book. So sure. to be honest with you, I have no idea what's coming next. I'm taking the time to do some freelance work and catch up on stuff and uh, definitely uh, play around with that little novella. Sure, sure. Well, well good luck with all of all of you know um, all of that that entails. Um, I, I want to wrap up now, but I did want to ask a, a, a final question, and, and that is for you know someone who's listening to this interview and, and podcast who may be an aspiring writer. If you have um, any you know suggestions, idea, motivating thoughts uh, for them. Well, I mean, uh, 
the stuff I always talk about is the, you know, the practice of writing. And the most important thing is to get in there and, and you did the biggest part of the word writer is the word write. And I think that, uh, you know, whatever your schedule is, whether you, you know, spend one night a week writing, you know, for four or five hours and bursting a whole lot out and spending the rest of the week thinking about it or whether you write a little bit every night that uh, no matter what you what you do, you just have to write a lot, you know, and, and or, or focus on the act of writing a lot and practice, practice, practice. Sure. Well, good. Well, well um, thanks for that advice. And um, again, we've been speaking with uh, Tobias Bokel. His uh, latest novel is Halo, the Cold Protocol, um, available at bookstores everywhere. Um, you can check him out online at TobiasBokel.com, all one word, uh, no spaces. And um, as he mentioned earlier, he has a upcoming short story collection um, going to be published uh, later this year by Worm Publishing, and that's uh, W-Y-R-M. And I think that's it for now. Thanks, Toby. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it, man. Okay, great. Thanks. to the reading and writing podcast if you like what you heard you can subscribe to our feed in itunes leave a review on itunes or send us an email at reading and at gmail.com thanks and we will be back soon with another interview with a writer that you enjoy reading sick of being upsold at gyms my guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.